Hello, and welcome to Love and Friendship. I'm Professor Kozlowski, and I will be teaching these sections of Love and Friendship this semester at Ramapo College. Uh, this is my first semester at Ramapo. I'm very excited to teach here. Um, so let's talk about what this class is actually going to look like. But first, I before you run away, because I know that I have a lot of online listeners and stuff, um, I want to talk about sort of what's different this semester from a kind of broad perspective. Um, this is going to have to, like, this, this lecture today is going to have to carry a lot of strange weight. Um, because on the one hand, I'm going to be introducing myself to students who have never met me before because that's how classes work. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm well aware that I have a pretty surprisingly fervent audience at this point in time who have been looking forward to more lectures recorded online. Um, and weirdly enough, you online folks are actually the primary audience for this particular lecture and the lectures to come. Uh, my class at Ramapo is technically in person, or at the very least it's going to be synchronous online, so the actual recorded lectures are secondary. Um, I imagine that students will be using them from time to time, um, but they're not required to, like they are in past classes. All of the course lecture stuff will be happening in real time, um, which makes this really weird. Uh, like, I do feel obligated to record this, not just for you wonderful internet fans who I love dearly and who are gradually, you know, accumulating in number, um, but also because it's a great fallback for the students that I have, and if I ever do teach this class online, then I'm ready to go, and if things change during the semester because COVID is weird and everything is unpredictable, you know, that all that's all to the good. Um, but I want to start by addressing the internet folks, all of you out in America or Europe or Asia or wherever. At this point, I've gotten so many emails from so many of you that it's actually really cool and exciting. And I'm very encouraged and very enthusiastic to start our whole discussion uh, this time around. But first off, Lenny says this is probably going to be really different um, from what has happened in the past. Um, so far, all three of the classes that I have recorded lectures for and uploaded online, with the exception of the bonus lectures based on questions that I received directly from, like, emails and students, um, they're, they've almost all been very rehearsed. Like, I was teaching Intro to Philosophy and General Humanities and Mythology for years before I ever started recording. Uh, but this is a brand new class. And in complete contravention of my usual habits, I will be recording these lectures before I deliver them in person. Um, so if you are in fact a Ramapo student, be warned, what we talk about in class with humans may be very different from what you hear on this lecture series. Um, to my internet folks, you kind of know the drill and you'll probably know it, never know any different. Uh, but if I sound more unpolished, more uncertain, that's probably why. This is new ground for me. Um, in more ways than one. Um, like, intro to philosophy, any philosopher worth their salt can come up with a curriculum in no time flat. Like, based on their experiences, or based on what they like, or some combination of the two. It's really easy because it's so broad. Um, 
Likewise, for a lot of my humanities courses, you know, the curriculum was kind of set in stone. It was kind of obvious. This was stuff that I had studied extensively and talked about extensively. The love and friendship curriculum is really new to me. Like, I've read most of these texts before. I've definitely read the symposium several times. I translated it for a while when I was doing my master's. Um, I've read Cicero's Anakita and all, and like 80% of the stuff in this class, but the manner and the method and quite a few of the texts are very new to me. Um, and this is the rough version. Like, as opposed to you getting the polished final draft, you will be getting the first draft. Um, before I've worked out the bugs, before I've figured out what texts need to be changed, um, before students have complained ad nauseum about one reading or another. Um, so if this is weird and rough, that's why. Um, and I apologize in advance if it's strange. But on the flip side, you get to see me au naturel, so to speak. Like, not the polished, very well-rehearsed versions of, of these lectures, um, but something very new to both me and you and to my students. Um, so it should be exciting. I'm, I have high hopes for it. I'm excited to learn this stuff, and I'm excited to teach this stuff. Um, at this point, this, the, my schedule of reading still isn't 100% finalized. I'm still going back and forth whether I'm going to teach Cicero or Aquinas um, or mess around with the syllabus in other strange and daunting ways. But at least insofar as it is finished, we will talk about it today. Um, so, thanks for bearing with me. Let's dive into the actual syllabus stuff for the students who do, in fact, need to know this. Um, just keep in mind, this does mean a new semester, a new class, many more recordings to come, at least insofar as I am able to record them and upload them properly. Um, so, look out. There, there will be lots, lots happening in the coming months. Um, but, again, let's look at the syllabus. Let's focus instead on my Ramapo students, those who missed the first day of class for whatever reason. Um, so sorry, internet folks. Thank you for, for tuning in. I hope that you continue to tune in for the rest of the semester. Um, I am looking forward to this stuff, but yep, we got to do businessy stuff, and I imagine that's the boring stuff, so feel free to, you know, go do something else. Um, so yes, I am Professor Benjamin Koslowski. I do not have an office at Ramapo because I'm an adjunct professor, so if you need to meet me for some reason, my office hours are online and by appointment. Um, I will be on campus every Monday in order to teach these classes, and as a consequence, I suspect I will be on campus probably an hour earlier um, than my first class actually starts. So if you need to meet me, feel free to meet me on Mondays between 1 and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I don't have a place that I hide at this point. <laughs> Usually I have like some place that I just end up hanging out for long periods of time where students can approach me as needed. I suspect I'll take up residence at the library. That's usually my, my hiding place, but that will very much depend on what the COVID procedures are, what uh, whether the library is actually functional, because at time of writing it is currently under construction. Um, we'll figure something out. Uh, if you need to meet me, just email me, contact me, talk to me like before, or after class, catch me before you know I run away, and we'll figure something out. Um, but for the most part, it will require your initiative. At this point, I can't give you a place where I'm just like likely to be found. Um, as for our course description, we're going to talk about love and friendship. Um, this is a big subject. 
Um, love is such a big and weird word, like, in the English language and in the traditions that have led up to our word love, like, there's so much here. Um, and what's more, it's weird in philosophy, like... When you talk about philosophy, usually the you have in mind these sorts of big ideas. The, you know, does God exist? Do we have free will? How does the mind work? Um, what is good and what is evil? Like, all of these big ideas tend to be the cornerstones of major philosophical arguments and discussions. These big ideas in metaphysics and epistemology. And love and friendship is something that philosophers frequently deal with only kind of tangentially. Like, as much as the Symposium is a really big and important work of Plato's, everyone knows that Aristotle is much better known for his physics, his metaphysics, his on the soul, and the first eight or first seven chapters of the Nicomachean Ethics. And his discussion of friendship, while valuable to the history of that discussion, is sort of secondary to Aristotle's thought. And a lot of the readings we read in class will be sort of in this secondary position. We're not going to read the Critique of Pure Reason, we're going to read this random lecture that Kant delivered about friendship. Um, now, I'm not going to try and dissuade you. Like, that's not the goal here. I'm not trying to scare you and say, this is just, like, weird philosophy. No, what I want to say is that philosophers actually have a lot of tr trouble trying to talk about these things. Um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, on the one hand, it doesn't really get easily scrutinized by rationality. Like, love isn't reasonable. That's one of the primary characteristics of love. And if anything, friendship is even less reasonable. Um, like, even in the 19th century, you've got tons of people who are so sort of dissecting love and turning it into this scientific chemical thing. Friendship, everyone's just like, well, I don't know what's going on here. Like, who can... Ugh. Uh, and as a consequence, this frequently leaves a lot of philosophers sort of grasping at straws. We're going to find a lot of very rough texts in this class, which is cool, I think. Like, on the one hand, it's less rigorous than I suspect a, a like, very close, very careful account of epistemology might be concerned. But on the other hand, it breeds such creativity from these thinkers in ways that are frequently difficult to anticipate. Um, love is something that some of these philosophers are really confused about, if that makes sense. Um, and at the same time, they're trying with their usual erudition and, and eloquence to capture what makes love and friendship and love in all of its various kinds of forms work. So this is fascinating stuff. Like, I've spent the last month just sort of beating my head against this, um, reading all these texts that I've either read before and didn't pay as much attention to because it wasn't as, like, core to my study, um, and also just weird stuff. Like, I fell down several rabbit holes and just discovered all of this weird information about, like, the Kama Sutra or the like, the Islamic influence on the medieval ideas of courtly love, or, you know, like, various reactions to Freud in the 19th century. This is a lot of new material for me, and it's a lot of very strange material to me. Um, so, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert this semester. 
not in the way that I've done before. Like, I don't think anyone can qualify as an expert on the subject of love and friendship. Or if they do, I'd be extremely wary of them. Um, one of the things that this class is going to do is string together a lot of ideas from a lot of different perspectives, and more than just in the sense of, like, philosophy is about many different cultures and many different periods of history, but seriously, like, we're going to be, in our travels, running across philosophers, running across orators in the grand, like, Roman sense, guys like Cicero or even, you know, Plato to some degree. We're going to be running across poets like Ovid. Um, we're going to be running across, you know, like, great novelists or great writers like Goethe. Um, we're going to hang out with psychologists like Freud, and we're going to hang out with sociologists like, I guess, de Beauvoir and Firestone. We're going to be looking at this from the perspective of the ancients, as well as the medievals, as well as the moderns and the contemporary thinkers, and we're going to come to wildly different conclusions. Like, so many of them. Um, like, when I teach Intro to Philosophy, one of the primary questions we end up dealing with is, is there a god? And that comes down pretty easily to either there is or there isn't. Or maybe we need to redefine terms in some way. Like, those are the three options. But with love, there's so many things. We will get people who think that love is completely contingent on beauty. We have people who think that love is completely contingent on like, personal value or, or worth, like, goodness in some sense. And then we're going to get people who are like, no, it's not contingent on anything. It's unconditional. Proper love is absolute and never gets questioned. And we'll get people who are like, no, it's completely conditional. It's entirely based on your own personal preferences and is therefore totally subjective. And then we're going to get people who are like, love is bullshit and there is no love and it's all just nonsense that poets have been stringing together for years. Like... It's so wild because there's so few categories, so few straight lines that can be drawn through the subject. It is fluffy, in a sense. And philosophers don't like fluffy. We like our straight lines. We want more math in our philosophy as a rule. And instead what we're getting is more unmeasurable, unquantifiable. Um, so if you came to this class hoping to have all of your questions about love and friendship answered, I am sorry to say that that is not going to happen. Um, if anything, I will just be raising more questions that you did not think of and further confusing you on the subject. Um, so, hooray. Um, if, in fact, you are here looking for new insights, that I will provide. Um, one of the things that I definitely want to stress in this class that, like, is part of the core curriculum as well as part of just, you know, you study this stuff for long enough and this kind of comes across, is our perspective, like, our culture's perspective. What you see in the movies and on TV, what people talk about in coffee shops or on dates, tends to be a very narrow perspective of what love is and what love embodies. The friendships that we have are just a very modern incarnation, a very recent development by comparison to the whole sweep of history. Um, and some of that is in common with the same kind of friendships that Plato and Aristotle had, but some of it is also completely out of step for reasons that get really complicated and fascinating. Um, but we'll come back to this. 
Suffice it to say that for our class's purposes, we're going to be treating this as though it is a way into an Intro to Philosophy course. This is, at the end of the day, a survey class. We're going to be looking at a wide variety of different philosophers, um, like wider than I would even usually be comfortable looking at. Like when I teach Intro to Philosophy, I teach maybe like five or six texts, and we look really deep at quite a lot of them. Um, like, we will, you know, read the entirety of Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion, the entirety of the Tao Te Ching, the entirety of Sartre's essay on existentialism and humanism. But here, we're going to instead be looking at little snippets of a lot of different philosophers. Like, we're going to start fairly big by reading all of the symposium, two whole chapters of the Nicomachean Ethics, decent chunks of, like, the New Testament and Old Testament. But it's going to just, like, disintegrate really quickly, and we're just going to be picking up essays left and right. By the end of this semester, we're going to be reading, like, three different writers with three different positions in a single day. So we're going to get a lot of different perspectives, um, and that's the goal here. The goal is not, like, we are going to define love and friendship. The goal is instead to show you how this has changed over literally 2,000-plus years. Um, how has love and friendship been endlessly re-examined, redefined, recharacterized? How has, it, has the normal definition been changed, and why has it been changed? That's what we're going to look for. So with that in mind, if you look at the first couple pages of the syllabus, you're going to see a lot of discussion of this as an introductory course, as just like, hey, this is... You know, your first exposure to philosophy, and we're just going to happen to talk about love and friendship. And also a lot of discussion about just what are, you know, the historical objectives that we're doing here. Like a lot of this, the, the whole table thing with the critically interpreted history and society, yeah, that's fine. That's all very formal ways of us sort of evaluating and analyzing, like, what is what are you supposed to get out of this class? Um, and the technical language should not distract you from the fact that this is essentially going to be a quasi-history course, a quasi-history of philosophy course. We are not going to be studying love and friendship to solve the problems. We're going to study the history of people talking about love and friendship to try and both understand their times better as well as understand our own time better in, in turn. Um, so when we kick off this class, we're not going to be doing it by just jumping directly into the texts. We're going to talk about history and how history works, how people reinterpret history over time. And a lot of the writers we're looking at are going to be doing that. Like, they're not just saying, you know, this is love and friendship based on my personal observations of these phenomena. They are instead saying, okay, this is my understanding of love and friendship based on some of my observations and a lot of other writers talking about this subject over a long period of time. Um, but that's all sort of theoretical and we'll get into that as we dig into the class. Let's instead jump to page three and start talking about the actual nitty-gritty of what hap has to happen in this class. And we of course have to start with our three textbooks. Um, so when I inherited this class from Professor Roy, who is not able to teach it this semester, um, I received these two textbooks and very much just sort of ran away with them. And I've got I don't know, opinions about them. Um, I haven't changed too terribly much, though, is what it comes down to. So we have two major textbooks, and they both are in roughly the same department. They are both anthologies. 
Um, they are both filled to the brim with various historical and contemporary philosophers waxing philosophical about various elements of love and friendship. Love in the big sense. Like, we'll be focusing primarily on sexual love, but that's not at all the whole picture that we're dealing with here. Um, so with that in mind, we have Michael Pakalok's edition, Other Selves, Philosophers on Friendship, which I'm honestly, like, really a huge fan of. Like, having read this book at this point cover to cover and read every single article in there, like, it's great. He has a lot of really solid entries. He has all of what I would have looked for as far as friendship is concerned without getting too far off the beaten path. Um, and at the same time, he is thorough. He includes everything we need to know. Um, if I have one grievance, it's that he cuts off Aquinas too soon, but if you don't cut off Aquinas too soon, he will go on forever and you'll never stop reading Aquinas. So really, I can't blame him for that one either. But he is, like, I love these excerpts. We will be in this book often. There's a lot of good stuff in here, and um, we will be able to read decent-sized, like, passages from these books that he's excerpting as well. Um, I have more hesitation about our other textbook, Solomon and Higgins's The Philosophy of Erotic Love. This is Trixie. Um, I've, my opinion of this book has changed over the course of the month that I've spent reading excerpts from it. And I think what it came down to is I was kind of expecting something from it that it turned out not to be. Um... See, I was expecting another anthology, much like Pacalux. Let's just throw tons of first or primary sources at us from various historical philosophers, and let's see what they have to say, and then, great. But I think Solomon and Higgins are actually doing something a little bit more sneaky and a little bit more sophisticated here. You'll notice if you look at the table of contents that there's four parts to the book. And the fact of the matter is, the historical examination of philosophers really isn't more than, like, the first section and a half or so. Like, the first quarter of the book covers literally everything from Plato to Nietzsche, which is, like, 99% of philosophy. Like, there have been way more people writing in the 20th century, but most of them are writing about this period. So the fact that it's only a quarter of the book is kind of throwing me, um, largely because I'm a continental-raised scholar, and I tend to think that history of philosophy is what we should be doing most of the time. Um, we do get quite a bit of other perspectives, like especially late 19th and early 20th century perspectives in the second quarter of the book. Like we get Freud, we get Sartre, we get de Beauvoir, we get Firestone, we get Horney and Rilke. Like, all very good. But what I think is particularly good about this book, and something that I'm kind of not used to from my textbooks, is that the entire back half is secondary sources. Um, we have Nussbaum and New writing about Plato's Symposium. We have Rorty writing about Spinoza. We have Rappaport writing about Rousseau. Um, we have a whole back section in book four of where various writers are just talking about the entire history of the discussion of love. And there's something really cool about that, like something I didn't appreciate initially. They are doing the same work we are supposed to be doing in this class, namely sort of trying to fit all of these diverse perspectives and opinions into one cogent and coherent theory, which is impossible. It can't be done. 
Um, but as we will discuss, many philosophers insist on doing that anyway because it helps them to sort of characterize and understand their own perspectives on love and friendship in a way that is robust without being comprehensive, if that makes sense. So we will, in fact, be reading a lot from this textbook, perhaps even more than the one on friendship. Um, but I will be careful about the readings. I will frequently just ignore them and just give you a handout instead because I find it more useful. Like, their excerpts of the symposium are just awful. Like, I, it misses so much and it makes me so disappointed. Um, which brings us, of course, to the third textbook. We're just going to read the whole dang symposium. Like, I was so irritated with Solomon and Higgins's excerpting that I just decided to make you buy the Oxford World Classics edition of Plato anyway. Um, so we're going to read the symposium start to finish. We're going to do it in one week, which is a bit fast, but I think we can handle it and we'll be able to, like, rehash it quite a bit in the weeks to come. Um, but the important thing that I want to stress here is that I am going to be very resistant to using the back half of that love textbook. All of those secondary sources, all of those modern and contemporary philosophers who are sort of imposing structure on this very unstructured idea. Um, largely because I want you to do that. Um, I want you to be the one trying to make sense of the senselessness here. I want you to be looking for meaning recognizing the, the problems that are coming up, um, recognizing the historical arcs of these discussions, um, rather than having them sort of spoon-fed to you. So we will, in fact, read a couple of those articles. We will, in fact, read multiple people sort of trying to sum up the whole perspective, but frequently when we do, I'm then going to ask you to refute them. I'm going to ask you to challenge them, to do that instead rather than just sort of accept at face value what these philosophers are coming up with as far as, you know, trying to fit the historical record of love and friendship into one coherent narrative. That's kind of what a lot of this is all going to be about. People are telling a story of how history has developed these ideas. I want you to see these ideas in their natural context, insofar as it is possible given our time constraints, and come up with your own story. Come up with your own way to fit the puzzle pieces together, if that makes sense. Um, so we will use that textbook, we will use the back half of Solomon and Higgins to sort of look at how those puzzles can be put together, but usually with the caveat that I am then going to turn around and tell you to do it instead. You're definitely not going to be qualified for it for the end of this class. I'm not qualified for it, and I've been studying this stuff for much longer. But it's good practice. Um, it's an important skill to develop. And it's what this class is ultimately aiming for. This is what college is all about, fitting all of these disparate ideas into one perspective that you can adopt and sort of embrace with the knowledge that you are sort of leaving stuff out, you know, dropping some of the things that you've learned, because in order to function as a human being, you cannot simply embrace all of the knowledge there is. It just doesn't work. Um, but we'll get to that later as well. Um, now, let's dive into the sort of really nitty-gritty stuff, the conduct section. I imagine all of you have seen these sorts of sections on syllabi before, if you have taken any college classes at this point, um, possibly even in your high school classes. Like, this is just basic boilerplate stuff. I just put it in my own way because I do want to sort of stress certain elements over others. Um, 
So basically, this is just a list of, you know, basic human decency stuff that I expect, which bears saying, because if you don't say it, then, you know, people will violate these rules, and then everybody will be grumpy at them, and there will be no good reason for it. Um, so first off, and most obviously, cell phones should be turned off and ignored throughout class. Um, obviously, that pertains more to our on-campus classes. I will not be able to check so much when you are on the other end of Zoom or Canvas conferences or whatever we're going to use to conduct our online component on Thursdays. Um, but even then, the, the, the spirit of the rule applies. You should not be distracted. Like, if you are sitting in my class, I expect you to be paying at least 95% of your attention to what we are doing in the class. And I know stuff happens. Like, you're in class, but, you know, you've, you're waiting for an important phone call. Maybe you've got a job interview on the line. Maybe, you know, your wife is pregnant or your sister or big family stuff is happening. If, in fact, you need to take a phone call, that's fine. Just be really discreet about it. Like, set your phone to vibrate. Position yourself towards the door so you can, like, run out when you get the phone call. Don't make your personal business intrude on everybody else's doing class stuff. Um, likewise, if you were at home watching our webcast, Zoom meeting, whatever, um, I'm not going to expect you to show up in the sense of like turning on your camera and making sure that I can see you staring at me. Um, but I do expect you to pay attention. You will be responsible for it. So if you aren't paying attention, you will be punished for it. Like the exam is coming. Um, but just generally speaking, it is way better for everyone if you are tuned in, if you are asking questions, if you are engaging with the material, if you're paying attention to the lecture when I do. Um, that should come as a no-brainer. Uh, the fact of the matter is, like, as much as I am saying, please do this for the sake of other students, it should also be for yourself as well. Like, if you don't do this, there will be a price to pay. Like, especially in philosophy, a lot of these texts are going to be really difficult, possibly some of the most difficult you've, stuff you've read in your college career. Um, and some of these will be really tough for you to pick apart without help. The lectures are where I'm going to be providing that help. Like every semester without fail, students tell me, you know, I couldn't make heads or tails out of Rousseau, or I couldn't make heads or tails out of Aristotle until you gave your lecture and then everything fell into place. That's not to toot my own horn, that's just like the way that these classes work. Philosophy is a tough discipline. It's very abstract. And if this is your first class in philosophy, which it's kind of geared to be, then you're probably heading into the deep end of a pool that you've never been in before and no one has trained you how to swim. If you want to not drown, you're going to have to pay attention to my instructions. That's not, again, like me trying to come down on you. That's just the way it is. Like... You've got to turn in decent work in order to pass this class, and in order to properly do that, you're going to have to understand the material we're talking about, which will be easiest if you're listening to the lectures. Um, second, I write that late assignments will not be accepted without prior consultation with the professor, i.e. before the assigned due date. And this is probably the closest thing on the syllabus that is an outright lie. Um, the fact of the matter is I totally accept late assignments all the time without fail um, with the exception of like the very end of the semester when I literally cannot afford to do that because I'm, you know, submitting grades to the college administration. Um, the key is make sure I know beforehand. Um, 
Like, I want you to succeed in this class as much as humanly possible. I want your best work, and I am willing to wait for your best work when it is appropriate to do so. Um, that doesn't mean that you get to just blow me off and, like, ignore my assignments. What it means is, you know, if you think it's not up to snuff, and you really could use another couple of days to complete the big paper, just tell me. Send me an email. Say, Professor Kozlowski, you know, I've been writing this really hard, but I've had some problems getting everything together, or I've, like, I really want to make it shine, or even if there is something outside that's, you know, in interfering, like, if you have a full-time job in addition to taking classes, if you have been taking care of a sick relative, if you have, you know, dealt with any number of potentially unanticipatable events, just say so. Say, Professor Kozlowski, I couldn't do this because I was at a funeral this week. Can I have an extra day? And I will probably, like, more likely than not, say, yeah, sure, no problem. Get it to me by the end of the day Sunday. Or get it to me by the end of next week. Or whenever. And it won't be a problem. Um, the key is, do it beforehand. Make sure I know what's going on beforehand. Um, don't wait until 15 minutes after the assignment is due and then send me the panicked email that says, oh, Professor Kozlowski, I didn't know that it was due today. I thought that it was due tomorrow. And as a result, I didn't get it in. Like, I'll probably still be lenient even in that situation, but it'll be me thinking about it. It'll be me thinking about what are our reactions up until this point. Can I trust this student? Rather than, sure, go ahead because I want to see your best work. And this goes for the entire class. Um, in general, the worst possible situation for me as a professor is for me to sit there and have no idea what is going on in your mind or in your life or in your experience or any of that. If I know that you're having problems at home, that like you can't find you know time to yourself or that you're constantly taking care of like younger siblings, that's fine. And I will absolutely take that into consideration when I'm evaluating your performance in this class, as well as when I'm, you know, listening to your pleas to push due dates further along. Um, so just let me know. Like, I know that there are professors who will just, like, bite your head off if you send them an email at the appropriate time. That is not me. I want to know what's going on. Now, in all likelihood, I'm going to totally ignore your email. Like, I will just blow it off for, you know, possibly even two days at a time because I'm working on stuff for other classes or I've got my own stuff going on. So don't panic if I don't get back to you, um, like, really, really quickly. There's, you know, tons of stuff that can get in the way. But in general, if I've seen that you've emailed me before an assignment is due or something, I will take that into consideration. I will get back to you as soon as I can, usually within the first 24 hours. But even if I don't, like, I know when I see a student, you know, trying to reach out to me that this is a student who's, you know, trying to be honest, trying to succeed at this class, and that encourages me. Um, the students I'm most worried about are the ones I never hear from, who are just a face in the back of the class, a name on the list next to Zoom, you know, a, a meaningless set of letters and whatever in my grade book. Um, I want to know where you're at, is what it comes down to. So talk to me. Like, reach out. Introduce yourself at the end of class. Send me a random question. Like, ask me what my video, favorite video game is. Like, by all means, let's open up that channel so I know what's going on with you, so you know what my expectations are. If we can pull that off, you will be way better equipped to handle this class, and I will be way better equipped to determine your performance. So just, if there's a problem, don't be afraid. I'm not going to be upset. 
let me know as soon as you possibly can. Uh, the one exception to my generous, I am trying to understand everybody and I recognize that, the life, that life has gotten crazy since COVID and as a result, exceptions will always trump rules is plagiarism. I will not tolerate plagiarism. As it says in the syllabus, plagiarism will not be tolerated. Plagiarized assignments will immediately receive zero credit. This is the one thing that you will never, ever, ever get lenience from me on. Um, if you plagiarize, you're going to get a zero, period. Like, you can whine and complain all you want afterwards, and it's probably not going to change it. Um, if you admit to it, it will go better for you than it will if you just deny it outright. But seriously, don't plagiarize in this class. We'll come back around to that. Um, the next few things are a bit fuzzier. First off, students should conduct themselves professionally and should preserve the classroom setting as a place for free intellectual discourse. Harassment based on race, sex, gender, religion, or ability will not be tolerated. This, I suspect everybody's got one of these on their syllabus at this point. I suspect that if you've had any college classes that are thoroughly discussion-based that this has come up. But this is especially important in philosophy classes and doubly important in a class on the subject of love and friendship. Because the fact of the matter is, this is going to get real personal real quick. Uh, like, even in my normal intro to philosophy classes, we're frequently talking about pretty tricksy stuff. We're talking about God, which means we're bringing in personal religion. We're talking about free will, which means we're bringing in ethics and sort of reevaluating people's actions. And the fact of the matter is, especially in the last couple of years, like, probably since 2016, but honestly, it has just ramped up so much since 2020. People have sort of forgot how to speak to each other civilly. Like, if you spend any time on the internet, if you have not successfully cut off all of your connections with people who disagree with you, you will see argument after argument, vitriol after vitriol, people getting very angry with each other about politics, about the coronavirus and the proper ways to combat it or to sort of, like, not in some cases. And the fact of the matter is, like, this is the death of all good discourse. Uh, like, honestly, if, if you asked me, Professor Kozlowski, what is the thing that scares you the most about contemporary culture, expecting me to talk about climate change or expecting me to talk about, like, the pandemic or expecting me to talk about, you know like the refugee crises, all of that would ultimately be secondary in my mind to the fact that we can't talk to each other. We do not compromise anymore. The polarization of left and right, of different political agendas or of different religious perspectives has become so great that we can no longer find common ground with the people we disagree with. Um, the fact of the matter is, I expect to have different viewpoints in this classroom. I expect that I'm going to have both hardcore Trump Republicans and hardcore, like, Bernie Sanders Democrats in this classroom. And as much as it may be to your advantage to just pretend like each other does not exist, just like it's Thanksgiving and that one uncle is, you know, starting to bang on about that topic that nobody wants to hear, I don't have that luxury. Like, I've got to talk to you both equally. And my perspectives, I suspect I can keep fairly well to myself for the course of this class. Like, love and friendship, as tricksy as they are as subjects, fortunately do not fall into political alignments. Um, 
But I am going to be very frank about some of them. Like, I'm going to tell you right now, I am a Christian. I am going to speak from a Christian perspective. That does not mean that I am a Republican. Nor does that mean that I am, like, hardcore against what most Christians are frequently banging on about. Um, it just means that I believe in Jesus. Like, that's it. I am a mere Christian in that sense. Um, I tend to think that it's way more important to be, loving, to be loving and tolerant than most of the things that American Christians get really, really worked up about these days. But that's my point. Um, I don't want to be prejudged by you because you've got a lot to learn about me before you are in any position to be able to say for sure what I believe or what I don't believe or anything like that. I expect you to give the same courtesy to your classmates. Um, but that goes both ways. Um, like, if you are, you know, fostering a very divisive or radical political opinion, I hope that you will, at least in so much as possible, keep it to yourself. Um, like, I don't want this to become a platform for Trump supporters or for Biden apologists or for Bernie Sanders grievers. Um, like, this is going to be an opportunity for us to discuss with a lot of people of different backgrounds and different perspectives, and so far as we've got that at Ramapo, um, it'll be an opportunity to look at very different points of view and evaluate them as objectively as we can, which that's a whole other conversation that is probably reserved for a whole other class. The key here is I want to have difficult discussions. Like, we have to. That's what philosophy is. Like, we're going to be talking about love and friendship in some very incisive ways. We're going to be evaluating the perspectives of people who deny that these things exist, as well as people who hold them as the highest virtues humans can attain. Both of these perspectives need to be valid, and we need to be able to discuss the merits, the possibility of each of these perspectives. Um, and to do that, we can't jump to conclusions about them. We have to let them speak for themselves. Uh, we have to evaluate the rationality, look at them and say, what does this have to offer us, even if we ultimately disagree with what this author has to say? Likewise, for each of us, we need to be patient. We need to be, to give each other the benefit of the doubt. So, as much as I do want to have tense, difficult conversations in this class, as much as I want to put people on the spot, as much as I want to challenge you, to think things that you have never thought before, to consider possibilities outside of your usual comfort zone, to basically take the things that you hold dearest and hold them up to the microscope so we can consider them seriously, what I don't want is for this to become a personal attack. We need to be able to distance ourselves from our own ideas, from our own lives, in a sense, far enough to be able to evaluate these things, to reevaluate these things, to change and to grow. Like, if you are 100% convinced of what you believe, you will never change. And that sucks, because humans change, the world changes, people all around us all the time are changing, and anyone who says otherwise is kind of aberrant in that suspect. Very strange. Like, we all have to grow. That's what human life is all about. Um, whether you're, you know, religious or secular, whether you're politically left or right, like, 
we have to be open to new ideas because new ideas are going to happen. Like, problems that we face now in the 20th century, as much as many of them are the same ones that Plato and Aristotle faced 2,500 years ago, they also have a lot of stuff that they didn't have to face. Like the fact that I can record a podcast, just have a lecture, stick it online where literally anyone in the world can click on it and listen to it, and as a consequence, my personal beliefs and perspectives and culture may very much come into conflict with things that Plato and Aristotle never anticipated before in a way that they couldn't possibly have anticipated. Um, that's growth. That's change. So as a consequence, in this class, I do want you to sweat. I want you to be uncomfortable. Not like uncomfortable to the point of like traumatized, but uncomfortable to the point that you're willing to look at yourself and ask yourself some serious questions. And I want the other students to be able to do that as well. But in order to do that, in order to do that safely, we have to be kind to one another. We have to be sympathetic. We have to be empathetic. We have to look at each other not as though they are like brainwashed monsters created by the mainstream media or the alt-right mouthpieces or Q or whatever, and instead look at each other as dignified human beings capable of rationality and capable of change. We have to persuade each other rationally, logically, not by just screaming at them until they, you know, submit. Um, I want sweat, but I don't want blood, and I don't want tears. I don't want you personally to feel attacked because somebody is taking on your ideas, but not you. And likewise, I definitely don't want anybody attacking anybody else. And this is going to be really touchy in this class, I think. Like, more so than in most of the classes I teach. Like, I teach an ethics class. We talk about abortion and euthanasia and half of the stuff that this country just goes nuts about. And yet, I have more concerns about us talking about love and friendship than I do about those big abstract ideas. Because, to some degree, when you sit down and you're all like, alright, today we're going to talk about abortion. It becomes this sort of box hanging out in space somewhere that like everybody can sort of objectively compartmentalize. There are exceptions, of course. Inevitably, in a class where we discuss abortion, we will have a student or two who, very quietly and without revealing themselves, has in fact dealt with this question one way or the other, has in fact come to conclusions about this question, or maybe even feels very passionate about it. But it still remains something kind of academic. When it comes to love and friendship, we're talking about each other's personal lives. Like, we are getting all up in each other's business. And I think that's part of the reason why philosophy has so much trouble talking about it. But the fact of the matter is, we can say, I don't think Freud has a very accurate view of love, or I think Plato's idea of love is very idealistic, and still be kind of safe. But at the end of the day, what we're saying is... I think love is this, or I think friendship is that. And it'll be very easy for those sort of doubts to creep into our mind, where we're sitting there thinking to ourselves, am I loving wrong? Like, am I doing life wrong? Am I, do I not have friends? And I want to avoid that. Like, I want to nip that one right in the butt. For one thing, if anyone does call each other out, I'm going to jump on them. Like, if somebody literally says, you don't know how to love properly, I will be pissed. 
Like, there will be conversations. It will get serious. Um, so just don't do that. Like, do not ever make it personal. Like, when you are saying that an idea is wrong, do not say, you know, you are dumb, or you are wrong, or your perspective is groundless or baseless. Instead, keep it to the ideas. You know, that's why we have all these philosophers. They are very dead in most cases and will not mind if we say Plato was a moron or Aristotle was an idiot or Aquinas was a heartless monster. It's okay. We can beat up on them and it's fine. But don't beat up on each other. But likewise, don't take it personally until it can't be interpreted any other way. Do not make this about yourself if you can avoid it. Like, the last thing on this conduct list, which I added sort of just for this class, and I know I'm skipping around at this point, but really it does make a lot of sense to talk about it now, is please do not self-diagnose. Um, this was the first rule in my 101 psychology class many, many years ago, and I think it is very much worth bearing on now, because frankly, I've been reading this stuff for a month, and I've been doing all of the self-diagnosis. It's hard not to. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what would Freud say about my marriage? Or, you know, is my sexual relationship with my wife, you know, in this ideal position the way that Aquinas is talking about it? Or is it actually just lust? Like, I'm asking myself those questions because we have to. We have to draw on our own experience to understand how love and friendship works. But at the same time, I do not at all want you to be sitting there thinking to yourself, what if I'm broken? You're not. Like, half of the philosophers, I think, might be. Like, I definitely have my suspicions about Freud and Sartre being perhaps too ingrained in the lives of, you know, people who are abnormally constituted in their psychologies to be able to, like, give us a decent perspective. But at the same time, like, that's not what this is about. It was never what this was about. Like, yes, I hope that you do come to some conclusions about what love and friendship actually are. I do hope that this does inform your lives, help you to be better lovers and better friends, help you to care about each other in ways that are more effective, because I think we've gotten out of the habit as a culture. But do not beat up on yourself about this. This should not be food for depression. This should be food for thought. Um, and I know it's really hard to separate that. So I'm just going to give you a blanket, like invitation for this semester if you want about to talk about this personal stuff with me feel free definitely don't feel obligated like this is beyond my purview as your professor but if you want to talk just like what does freud mean by this what does rousseau mean by this do you agree with this on a personal level i'll give you answers like i want to help you work through this i'm not a psychologist i'm not a therapist so I'm not going to give the best advice. But if you just need someone to talk to about stuff that is really heavy in this class, by all means, send me an email. We can have a conversation. And I will do my best to respect you if you promise to do the same. Um, but keep in mind, again, as I said at the outset, there are no experts here. Um, like, I have friends who are psychologists and therapists and their training is very different from the stuff that we're going to be talking about here. Even different from Freud. Like, Freud's approach is very much a completely different animal from what, like, cognitive behavioral therapy looks like today. Um, it's just completely different. Um, but keep in mind, like, do not go into this alone. Have conversations with the people that you trust and the people that you care about. 
Um, don't like sit in the void stressing about whether or not you're doing life wrong. The deep and ugly secret behind all philosophy at all times always has been that at the end of the day we are trying to oversimplify things that are just not simple. And one of the things about love is that it is very much a different animal for every person who has ever experienced it. Like, I love my wife differently than she loves me. And that's a completely different relationship from the relationship I've had with other girlfriends, or with my family, or with, like, my nieces and nephews who I love. Like, there are similarities. There's a reason why we use the same word to cover all of this. But there are also differences. And to some degree, I firmly believe that no one can tell you what love is or what it's supposed to look like, or any of that. Like, if there is an authority, it's God. And inconveniently for us, he is not terribly open about telling us all of the details about our lives. Um, so without that help, without that very objective perspective, we are very much left to fight for ourselves. Do not, do not think that these writers, these philosophers, your classmates, or me for that matter, are authoritative in a way that your experience is not. You've got to figure this out for yourself because you're the only one who can. You're the only one who knows yourself well enough. Cut yourself some slack. Like, do not jump to the conclusion that you're doing things wrong. Um, I don't know if that's a necessary warning. I'm hoping that everyone in here is like mature and confident enough in themselves that it's not going to be a big deal. But again, that's the trick in doing philosophy. We should be prompted to question. We should be prompted to sort of reevaluate and rethink what we are doing. Because we probably are engaged in some pretty unhealthy behaviors that could probably, you know, benefit from being changed in some ways. But at the same time, there's no guilt to be had. Um, just because you do need to change does not necessarily mean that you are bad or wrong. Like, I would imagine that all of the students in my class are between the ages of 19 and 22 at this point. Like, I'm 35 and I've still got stuff that I haven't figured out. Like, I'm still just hanging on to life by the skin of my teeth. So I imagine that you guys are just like being tossed around by the giant tides that are like politics and ideas and philosophy and social life and college and just I, like it was nuts when I was in college and you know I was an idiot and I made tons of mistakes and I regret some of them and I don't regret others but the fact of the matter is regrets are otherwise save that for when you're in your 30s reevaluating your 20s for now just live it like figure it out don't get bent out of shape that when you were 18 you, aren't, you weren't as smart as you are now. Or that at 21 you don't have the world figured out. Of course you don't. And you won't. You'll be 65 and you'll still be sitting there wondering about, you know, how much you actually know. Or if you're not, then you should be. Like, the one of the most central truths of philosophy is what Plato used to say, Know thyself, the old oracle at Delphi inscription. I.e., you will be wrong get used to it, and embrace it to some degree. Which brings us to the conduct point we skipped. This is philosophy. Questions and mistakes are encouraged. I know that part of the whole business of being a college student is, like, you have so much going on 
beyond what's happening in this classroom. And I imagine that for most of you, what's happening in this classroom is way less important than your social lives or your family lives or your like life in the dorms or any number of other things that are going on. Like, I know I was a diligent student in college, but that's because I was a weirdo, and I recognized even then that I was a weirdo. Like, the fact that I was reading all the texts did not change the fact that I knew that, like, 90% of the students in the class were not. So, what I want to stress here is don't let your social obligations interfere with your ability to learn. That's what I want to stress. Like, I know in order to be, you know, sexually viable, in a time when you are at your sexual peak. Um, I know that in order to make friends, you need to project confidence and control and, like, you've got everything figured out. That's great. Yep, that's that doesn't change. Like, years and years and years from now, you will still need to project confidence and all that stuff and not seem to be, like, a giant mess all of the time in order to make people like you and listen to you. Um, but at the same time, in order to learn and to grow, you're going to have to look dumb from time to time. Like, nobody got better by being awesome. Um, or nobody got better by thinking that they're awesome, I suppose I should say instead. They got better by screwing up and learning from it. They got better by asking questions and taking the answers to heart. Um, they got better by looking dumb enough that they ended up being smart. Uh, most of the friends who I respect the most are the ones who are most open to, to criticism, to question, the ones who ask the questions the most. So if you have some romantic attachment in the classroom and you're trying to look tough and smart for them, cool, make a pact that you will not like judge each other for what is said in this class because I want you to look stupid. Like, not because it makes me feel good, although it does, um, but because it will actually help you. Like, if you are not sure about when an assignment is due, ask. Because God knows there's five other people in the class who also have the exact same question and are a little too shy to raise their hand and ask it. Um, if you will have no idea what Aristotle is talking about in Book 9 of the Nicomachean Ethics, great, let's talk about it. If you go out of that classroom not knowing, there's probably zero chance that you're going to be able to just, like, magically come to the conclusions. Like, maybe if you work really hard at it, you'll be able to figure it out for yourself, but it would be way easier if you just asked the question and got the head start that I can offer. So, leave your pride at the door. Um, let's all plan to look like idiots. Because this is philosophy, and in order to become smarter, you've got to start as an idiot. The more idiotic you are willing to be, the more you have to learn. Uh, so those are our three big sort of personal issues that I wanted to drive home. First off, be nice to each other, respect each other as human beings. You know, don't take things personally, but definitely do not make them personal either. Second, don't self-diagnose. Do not take any of these writers or texts or even me as like accusing you or condemning you of being wrong in some way like if you see a therapist if you want to go you know talk to a psychologist i'm not going to discourage you it's usually a good idea for everyone healthy unhealthy or otherwise whatever those words may mean like i got some major questions about what constitutes normal we'll get to that lastly don't come in here proud don't show off plan to look dumb Plan to ask questions. Plan to make mistakes. Plan to be educated, in short.
It'll make us all better people by the end of this. And keep in mind, I'm not going to be perfect, especially this semester. This is my first time teaching Love and Friendship. It's my first time teaching at Ramapo. I'm going to be all left feet and thumbs this semester. I am going to absolutely have my foot in my mouth more often than it will be on the floor. Um, so please have patience with me. Like, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to offend people. I'm going to be insensitive. It's not because I'm trying to. I'm legitimately trying to make sure that everyone in my class succeeds, is having a good time, is learning, and is growing, adapting, changing, maturing. Um, that is, in fact, earnestly my goal. Like, at the end of the day, you can call me on this. And if I am not doing that properly, let me know. Like, legitimately. Do not think that I'm, you know, got this sort of pride that I'm petting back at home where I'm like, hmm, I am so smart because I can tell all these 19-year-olds what to think. Like, yes, yeah, some part of me wants that, and that part needs to be shut in the corner and, and like, left to die. Um, at the end of the day, I want to make you feel comfortable talking about things that make you feel uncomfortable, for as crazy as that sounds. I need us to be able to confront society's manias and obsessions and weirdness both in our time and in the times past and in order to do that effectively we need to occasionally challenge these ideas occasionally need to cross lines and break taboos so it's going to be a delicate walk and if i've gone too far let me know like raise your hand in class and tell me if you want or tell me after class if you're more comfortable like, I don't want to make you feel more uncomfortable than you already are talking about stuff that is, by its very nature, very personal and intimate. Okay. I hope that that was not too much or egregiously boring. I will get off my soapbox now, and we can resume our discussion of crazy bureaucratic details. Um, so with that in mind, the attendance policy... Um, obviously, philosophy is really dependent on conversation, as I've just been stressing for the last, like, 20 minutes. Um, so, attendance is kind of important as a consequence. Um, like, in general, I hate attendance policies. I think that I should be able to, like, do the exam, do the paper, and call it a day, and not have to worry about anything else. Um, so I tend to be fairly lenient about attendance. Um, if you have an excuse, by all means, let me know. Like, if your car didn't start, or if you, you know, can't if you are in fact sick, if you are worried about getting other people sick, especially nowadays, stay home. Do what you need to do. Like, this should not be the most important thing in your life. If it is, you might be doing it wrong. Um, but, you know, we need to strike that balance. So if you need help, if you need to miss class, just let me know and I'm going to be perfectly tolerant. Um, every absence after the third that isn't excused, like the third time that you miss class and don't give me any reason for it, and afterwards you will lose 1% of your final grade, period. Like, the attendance and participation score, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is 10% of the final grade, and I literally grade it as 10 points. Like, if you lose attendance points, you will lose one point from your final grade. Your new possible best grade is a 99. And instead of grading off of 100, you'll be grading off of that. If you miss a whole bunch of classes, like if you miss nine classes unexcused, well, your highest possible grade is a 94. And if you know anything about math, that means that no matter how good your other scores are, it's going to drop quickly, quicker than it would have otherwise. Um, so I don't advise you to miss class, but I do understand it, especially under the circumstances. 
do not push yourself to come to class if you are not feeling well. We don't want to get sick. Um, we don't want to keep spreading this virus more than it already has. Like, maybe we did miss our opportunity to, like, cut it off at the cradle. Um, but even so, we should not be just spreading it willy-nilly without any concern for other people. Um, I don't know what sort of ailments or illnesses, what vulnerabilities the other students in this class may have. And it's not my job to ask. It's my job not to ask. So best to be on the safe side. If you don't feel well, stay at home. Let me know. We'll figure something out. I am, in fact, as I discussed, recording all these lectures. So there will be some way of making it up. We'll figure that out in its own time. Um, other stuff, again, I will have office hours, sort of. Um, not like in an office, because I don't have one. Um, but just because like, I'll make myself available. Um, again, if you need to meet with me for some reason, just email me. I can always figure something out, especially after my classes on Monday or before them. Um, I will make sure that you can reach me, is what it comes down to. Um, even if that doesn't mean that there will be a place where you can consistently find me. Towards the end of the semester, as we're getting close to papers and stuff, I will probably set apart an hour and I'll just show up and be here for an hour. Um, or be on campus for an hour, rather. Or be online, ready to talk for an hour. We'll figure that out. Um, but, you know, again, as I stressed before, keep an open line of communication with me. Do not just drift away. Um, disabilities and special accommodations, if you are registered with the Office of Specialized Services, if you have a disability, if you need more time on exams or quizzes or whatever, just let me know. Again, this is something that I can really easy de easily deal with most of the time. I just need to know that I need to. Um, so just talk to me as soon as humanly possible. Say, Professor, I need more time on the exam, or Professor, if I could get some a little extra help with the paper writing. That's easy to, enough to do. Just let me know. Oh, oh, look! It's the academic integrity section again. Plagiarism will not be tolerated. Plagiarized assignments will immediately receive zero credit. Yeah, let's talk about this. Because in the time of moving online, the plagiarism has gotten so bad. Like, I think there was talk last year about, like, West Point, you know, the military academy, apparently, like, had to drop, like, a third of its freshmen because they all plagiarized. And those numbers seem pretty consistent with my experience. Like, all of my all-online classes have had, like, at least 25% plagiarism rates at this point, and it is mind-numbingly awful for a professor to deal with this. Like, I cannot stress enough how much I hate plagiarism. Um, I have written articles on the subject. I have ranted to classes on the subject. Like, this, ugh, I can't. I just, I just can't. Um, what I do want to stress here at the outset, first off, is that I don't want you to plagiarize, and that literally anything else would be better than plagiarism. If you were staring at the assignment for like the third day straight and you were scared to death, of turning in a four to five page paper on one of the questions that I have posed, that's fine. Write something else. Literally anything else. You could literally write, Professor Kozlowski is a demanding asshole over and over and over on a piece of paper and turn it into me the next day as your assignment and you will get a better grade than you would if you plagiarized. If you only turn in two pages instead of five, you will get a way better grade than you would get if you plagiarized. If you turn in a poem about how uncomfortable you feel talking about love and friendship in this classroom, 
you will get a way better grade than you would if you plagiarized. So when in doubt, do not panic, do not freeze up, do not immediately recourse to how do I cheat myself out of this situation. Talk to me. We can come up with a secondary assignment. We can come up with something alternative. I've done it in the past. It's not a big deal. Again, my goal is to see your best work. If your best work does not look the way that I think your best work should look, talk to me and we'll figure out a compromise. I might deduct some points. I might not, depending on how awesome it turns out. I've had a student turn in a short story instead of a paper, and it was great, and it did everything I wanted to see, and so she got a good grade on it. Like... I can't stress enough, plagiarism is not just the last resort, it is the worst resort. Literally any other alternative would be better. Um, like, ugh, I can't, I can't, oh my gosh, I'm getting so worked up. I may need to, like, take a break. Um, the second thing I want to stress, and I think that this is probably not as much a problem as people seem to make it out to be, but I have a lot of students who will come to me and say, Oh, Professor, I didn't know I was plagiarizing. And I know that a decent number of them are in bad faith, and that they know exactly what they're doing, they're just trying to snow me. Like, I've had my fair share of people who have, like, lied directly to my face about plagiarism. It happens. It happens relatively frequently. It is still really annoying and obnoxious. But just in case, there are people in this class who really have no idea what plagiarism constitutes. Let's straighten that out, shall we? There are three forms of plagiarism. First, there is the word-for-word -word plagiarism. This is the most obvious. If instead of writing your paper, you go on Sparknotes and you copy two or three pages on Play-Doh, and you just paste it directly into a Word document and submit it as your own work, that's plagiarism. Turn it in, I'll catch it. I'll catch it, because at some point I'm going to know all of the Sparknotes stuff on this. And as a result, you'll get a zero on the assignment. And then, like, there will literally be no way out of the situation at that point. Like, I will just be like, uh, that wasn't your work. There's nothing that you have to show that isn't, you know, somebody else's words. Therefore, zero, period, the end, plagiarism, that's it. Now, the second kind of plagiarism has gotten tricky lately. Now, if you take that same two to three pages from Sparknotes, and you stick it in, say, Grammarly, and Grammarly gives you all these suggestions, like, oh, maybe if you change these words around, or no, maybe if you use this other word instead of the word that they're using, or oh, what if you, you know, make this two sentences instead of a semicolon? And students will, like, doctor up their paper. They'll just click all of what Grammarly suggests, or they'll, you know, look for more suggestions, or maybe there's some other algorithm, or some other, you know, app that allows you to just run your paper through some sort of, like, translation software that turns it into something unrecognizable from the original text. That's plagiarism. Now, some students will, you know, they'll come to me and they'll say, oh yeah, that's totally plagiarism. You got me. But other students, especially lately, have been really confused about this. Like, I've literally had students come to me and say, Professor Kozlowski, why did you think that this assignment was plagiarized? I ran it through Turnitin's free plagiarism checker and it said it was 0%. To which I respond, I don't care. <laughs> This isn't about how much it matches the thing that you got it from. It doesn't matter how much you've doctored it from a source that wasn't yours. When I say that I want original work, what I mean is that I expect you to start with a blank page and some sources 
And for you personally to be synthesizing these works into something that is entirely of your own making. Sure, you're going to quote other stuff. Sure, some of the ideas are going to belong to other people. And you're going to cite them. And you're going to tell me, oh, this came from Sparknotes. Or this came from, you know, Martha Nussbaum. Or this came from this other source that I found online. That's the way that research is supposed to work. You're supposed to take other people's ideas and synthesize them yourself, originally. Not through some algorithm, not by just sticking chunks of text next to each other and hoping I don't notice. That's not original. That is plagiarism. If you rearrange in somebody else's work and present it as your own, that is, at the end of the day, not your work, but theirs. The fact that you excerpted it and changed it does not change the fact that it is not yours. And again, I know that this is occasionally confusing. The rules on the internet about what constitutes plagiarism and what constitutes intellectual property are very different from what we're talking about here. Like if you go to a meme maker and you type in your own phrase on a picture that is pre-generated, that's largely considered by the internet world to be original work. But it wouldn't in this class. I would expect you to tell me, oh, I went to this page, and I got this picture, and I got this, you know, I used this font that was pre-selected, and so on and so forth. For it to be original work, I expect to see, like, mostly original ideas on your part. And that said, whatever Turnitin says, whatever percentage it gives you, it actually doesn't mean anything to me. I have passed people with no questions about plagiarism, who have had papers with 40% or more plagiarism checker. I have also accused people of plagiarism who had 0%, um, because it has literally nothing to do with exactly how much matches these other sources. Turnitin is just one of the many tools I use to determine whether a student is plagiarized or not. I will also do Google searches. I will also just use my intuition and look for passages that very obviously do not belong to the material that we've talked about. I will observe and see students who radically change their style between their response paper and their final paper. Um, I'm looking for that stuff. It's not just a numerical value. It's not something purely quantitative. It is to some degree qualitative. And I, at the end of the day, am very careful. One time, one time, I have accused a student of plagiarism and then recanted, then said that I made a mistake. And that time it was because I didn't see the source that they were using. They cited it and I didn't catch it. That was the problem. It was not a, oh, well, this looks suspiciously similar to something. Like, no, that does happen all the time. Like, one of my favorite examples is any student who writes about the Garden of Eden will end up probably writing about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that is a stock phrase that appears online all over the place because it's a formal term, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's like 12 words long. So as a consequence, like every plagiarism checker flags it. I don't care because I expect you to use that term if you're going to talk about the Garden of Eden. Like if you are going to talk about the fall of man from grace in the Old Testament, and you're not going to talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You're probably doing something wrong. So it's not a big deal. If your sentence looks suspiciously like somebody else's sentence and it's just an accident, chances are I'm not going to call it. I am looking for sustained, obvious examples. I am looking for whole paragraphs that have been taken wholesale from, from other sources. And most of the time I can catch that it's not just that paragraph. So if you are worried that I'm going to mistakenly catch you for plagiarism, please put your mind at rest. 
It does not happen. Like, it might happen once or twice. Obviously, I can't be 100% sure. I am a ph philosopher, and I don't think 100% sure, like, ever happens. But I think that I am very careful about this. And if you do have a legitimate grievance, I highly recommend you talk to me about it, but you have to be very honest and very direct from the outset. Because the minute I accuse you of plagiarism, whether correctly or incorrectly, I am going to be suspicious of you. Like, you have lied to me, is the way that I understand it. And whether that's fair or unfair, obviously that will have yet to be determined. But I expect you to put my fears at rest specifically by telling me exactly what you did to put your paper together. So do not send me an email that says, Professor, you accused me of saying plagiarism, but you didn't show where in the paper it's plagiarized. No, of course I did not. Because if you did that, you would just say, Oh, I accidentally didn't cite, whoopsie-daisy, it's not plagiarized. I've seen it so many times. So if I accuse you of plagiarism, I expect you, if you are going to reject this, if you're going to fight this, to defend yourself and tell me exactly what it is that you did, exactly what sources you used, exactly how you used them, exactly where they appear in your paper. If you put in real time and effort collecting these sources and just made a whoopsies, if you just forgot to cite, I expect you to know. Like, oh, well, oops, I didn't cite it, but yeah, I definitely used this page and this page and this page. Sorry, I made that our wires got crossed here. If you don't, then I'm basically anticipating that either somebody else did this for you, or you did it yourself and you're just trying to hedge with me. So don't. If you rearrange other people's work, it's still plagiarism. Um, I expect to see original work, stuff that you wrote yourself, ideas that you've compiled into a central thesis yourself. If you have questions about this, absolutely, talk to me. Send me an email, ask me what I mean. You know, like, I know that the high schools are pretty awful at this point about teaching proper paper writing technique. So I will not blame you if you don't know how to do this stuff. I will, however, fail you if you fail to correct it by the end of the semester. Not because it's personal, not because I'm mad, but because I really can't judge your work otherwise. That's what we're expected to know. Um, the third way of plagiarizing is the fuzziest of all. It is paraphrase. And paraphrase is technically you are taking somebody else's ideas, but not their words. So if you look at Sparknotes and you're like, wow, this person has a really good summary of Plato's Symposium, and you start using those same ideas, but they're presented in roughly the same way. Like if they make this central point in paragraph one, and you make this central point in your first paragraph. And then they make this point in paragraph two, and you make the same point. And then paragraph three, the same point. Paragraph four, the same point. That's plagiarism. Because even if you aren't using their specific words, even if you are rephrasing it in your own words, it is at the end of the day Sparknotes' ideas, not yours. And you should cite it. But that's the key. The difference between a plagiarized paraphrased paper and a totally legitimate paraphrased paper is just the citation. If you put the footnote at the bottom and it says, I got this from Sparknotes, we're good. Like, you might have other problems if your entire paper is just other people's ideas that you've rephrased. Like, then you're going to lose points for other reasons. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to accuse you of plagiarism. Um, and that's what this all comes down to. All I want is for you to cite your sources. Like, even if you present nothing to me on the page but other people's word-for-word -word citations 
properly cited, properly presented as though they were other people's works, you will get a better grade than you would if you plagiarized. It won't be a good grade, but it will be a better grade. Because at the very least, I see that you are trying to tie these ideas together in a way that is yourself original, while not presuming that these are your own ideas, if that makes sense. Again, if you have any questions, if any of this is unclear, if any of this sounds unfamiliar, or if any of this does not agree with your own opinions about plagiarism, the, your way of understanding and learning about this, talk to me about it. I do not want to have this conversation like three days before the end of the semester when the grades are due. I want to have this conversation now so we can fix it, so we can correct it, so we can go forward. And what's more, if you neglect to do that, if you are sitting there thinking to yourself, eh, I know what plagiarism is, it's not a big deal, and then we have a conversation later, it will be on you. Because I offer, I'm doing the best that I can. I can't anticipate every possible, you know, student's lack of education or whatever the case may be. I need you to take responsibility for yourself on that level. Like, I've got too many students. I can't watch over every single shoulder. But I can help if you ask for it. Even if you think you've got it, even if you are sitting there in your chair right now listening to this lecture and saying to yourself, man, they taught plagiarism so often in high school, I don't need to worry about this. Talk to me anyway. <laughs> like, I'd rather have a fruitless conversation that just confirms what you already know than for you to actually be mistaken and find out at the worst possible time. So don't plagiarize, and please sort out what it is that you don't know about plagiarism between now and then. If you don't want to talk to me about it, fine. There's tons of stuff on the internet. Not all of it is trustworthy, so be careful with it. I'd recommend the Purdue OWL page. It is very helpful. Also talk to the Writing Center. Like, they're great. I have worked with Writing Centers at various schools. I admittedly do not know what the deal is with Ramapos, but they tend to be really awesome and helpful, especially if you're struggling with this stuff. They know plagiarism inside and out. So by all means, talk to them. Um, they may very well contact me and ask me questions, in which case you'll still get the, get the answers from the horse's mouth one way or the other. But don't leave it up to chance. Do not go blindly into that paper. Make sure we are on the same page before you do. All right, I know that I said that I'd put my soapbox away, but here we are standing on it again. All right, we are putting it away. Let's quickly, in the last few minutes, talk about the grades and assignments for this class. Um, so all the grades and assignments are laid out, what I hope is very clearly, on the following pages. Um, you can see the breakdown of the weights. Um, I will, you know, have all of that programmed into Canvas, likely by the time that you hear this, although it hasn't been done yet. Um, but let's talk about the individual assignments and how they function in this class. Um, first off, of the reading quizzes, my plan at this point, because I have not written any of them at this point, is to have a reading quiz every week. Um, these will be totally online quizzes. They will be due before our online session on Thursdays. Um, and they're literally just to make sure that you did the reading. They're 10 questions long, multiple choice. It probably won't take you more than 10 minutes to complete them, but I'm also not going to put a time limit on them. Um, I used to, and then I stopped, because in philosophy, my questions were so brutally difficult that even researching them online would not help you all that much, which probably requires some clarification. Why are my reading quiz questions so murderously difficult? 
Well, the idea here is that this is not just me checking on you being able to do the reading, but also me trying to train you as clumsily as it is to read like a philosopher. To be able to open a philosophical text like Plato, or like Aristotle, or like Rousseau, or like Kant, and to pick out what is really valuable, what the philosopher is saying in and amongst all that very technical language. Um, as a consequence, these questions may seem more subjective than they actually are, though I warn you they are very carefully worded. Possibly even to the point that you don't even understand what the question is asking initially. But it's meant to be super logical, super specific. Now I've gotten better at writing questions as time has gone on, and the idea here is you should be able to get a passing grade if you have just done a cursory reading of the work. If you want to get the full 100% though, I'm going to be asking questions about specific details, about overarching ideas, and those might be tricky. I have a lot of students who don't do well on the reading quizzes. Like not just, oh my gosh, I got a 60 on the reading quiz. I'm talking about students who come to me and say, I got a 20 on the reading quiz, or I got a 10, or I read this thing four times and I still got 40. Like, it can get bad. But what I want to stress first is, don't worry about it. Um, I'm going to drop the lowest two quizzes at the end of the semester. So if you just have a bad week or if you miss one altogether, shit happens, don't worry about it. That quiz will just disappear and it will not affect your grade and it's not a big deal. Um, the other thing is, even if you do repeatedly get low grades on the rating quizzes, it's only 10% of the final grade. And what's more, you can always earn more quiz drops. There will be three extra credit assignments over the course of the semester, and every single one of them that you complete will drop an additional quiz. And I'm pretty sure, if my math is right, that that means that by the end of the semester, you will drop the five lowest grades, which is like half of the reading quiz grades altogether. So you will absolutely not stand or fall on your reading quiz grade. What's more, every time you finish one of those extra credit assignments, you're going to put in 100% in its place, which will absolutely rocket that grade up. So if you're struggling with the reading quizzes, I'm sorry, that happens sometimes. It does take a while to sort of figure out how it is that I'm trying to guide you to read the texts. Um, but even if it doesn't happen, don't worry about it. It's not the end of the world. Like reading quiz grades will not be the deciding factor in your overall average. They're meant to be difficult. They're meant to make you think. And I, by all means, come to class asking about them. Say, what did you, what were you looking for with this particular question? What was the answer? And we'll talk about it because typically those questions are geared towards like what I want to talk about in class over the course of the day. Um, so by all means, that's a great incentive for me to talk about the things that are bothering you first and foremost. Um, so don't worry about it. Like, this is not the end of the world. They will for a while be the only grade you have, which means you may spend weeks of this class looking at some abysmal below failing grade, but please don't worry. I know. I know how it looks, and it is not going to be representative of your final average. Please do not drop the class on this. If you want to talk to me about how you're doing in the class, by all means, turn in an early response paper. Um, like, have a conversation. It's not reflective, and I know it's not reflective, and I will make sure that nobody thinks that it's reflective. Um, so please do not panic about the reading quizzes. They will drive you nuts, but as much as possible, just, just let them happen. Just, just go with the flow. Just let them roll off your back, and then we'll talk about them. 
where things really will start to get like meaningful is the response papers. Um, we're going to have two response papers over the course of the semester, and they are both just short little one-page assignments. They are not meant to be stressful. They are not meant to be like specific. I will, in fact, ask a specific question, mostly because like students freak out if I make them too open-ended. But that's really the only reason. Like, I really don't have anything that I'm looking for specifically for the response papers. The goal of the response papers is not like, do you understand the reading? Like, I'm sure, I want you to you know understand the reading, and I will use it to gauge it a little bit. But really, what I'm much more interested in is how is your writing? Um, how can you articulate your ideas? Like, I don't mind if you turn in a response paper and the response paper is basically, I was really confused and I had no idea what was going on in this. It happens. Don't worry about it. Um, what I'm looking for is, can you articulate why you were confused? How you were confused? What specific passages made you confused? That's the goal of most of the writing that we're going to be doing in this class. Can you, in fact, articulate these ideas? Can you, in fact, express your ideas? rather than just sort of hand wave at them and fuzzily explain, yeah, I thought it was good, or, you know, it was really confusing, period, the end. Like, I need specifics, I need details, I need you to interact with the text, and I can then, like, gauge how you're doing. When I grade them, it'll be according to this really weird scale that I will explain in class, so don't worry about it for now. Uh, but it'll basically be an opportunity for me to like send you a red flag that says, hey, maybe look into your writing before the big assignments come in. Um, but we'll get to that. The other thing that I want to stress, though, is that with the response papers, since they are meant to sort of help you work on your writing and sort of as an indication of how well your writing is going in this class, if you turn in a hard copy of the response paper in addition to the digital copy on Canvas that I require, I will give you detailed feedback. Like, I will take my red pen and I will mark the shit out of your paper. And it's not personal. Again, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm trying to help you with your writing. So I will point out, like, this is a run-on sentence. This is a really unclear idea. This would be a really great place to include an example. This is really a confusing way of wording this. Um, that's what I'm going for. So if you want help with your writing this semester, I am absolutely willing to help you. Just turn in a response paper, turn in the hard copy, I will mark the crap out of it. Turn in early drafts of the big papers and I will mark them up. Like, anything that I can do with the time that I've, give, I've been given, I will use to help you with this as much as possible. Like, the goal of this class isn't to make you better writers, but you've got to be a better writer in order to be able to successfully fulfill the goal of this class. So as much as it is possible, I will help. Um, if you want to become a better writer, this is a good opportunity don't waste it. Um, if you don't care, that's fine. I expect 90% of my students are not going to turn in hard copies because it is purely voluntary and it is, at the end of the day, more work. Um, but if you want help, this is a great way of getting it, and I will do the best that I can. Um, the, now, about those two big papers. Um, the first of our, quote, big papers is the symposium paper. Again, we're reading the whole symposium cover to cover. That's why I made you buy the book. Um, because I wanted to like talk about the whole thing and not just the bits and pieces that Solomon and Higgins apparently thought were important. Um, we're also going to use this as an opportunity to do some actual analysis and historical like contextualization because conveniently enough there are two articles in our textbook by Solomon and Higgins about the symposium. Nussbaum's The Speech of Alcibiades and News Plato's Homoerotic Symposium. Nussbaum is effectively arguing 
that Plato is coming to a very undecided conclusion, and that Alcibiades's like discussion of love as emotional and erotic is in direct opposition to Plato's own speech, like Socrates' speech from Diatima about love as this like grandiose idealistic thing. And uh, Jerome News argument is functionally about the homoeroticism in Plato and how Plato is ultimately discussing that like the homosexual relationship is the only functional love relationship. Both of them come to some pretty interesting conclusions and both of those conclusions are pretty controversial. So in your symposium paper I will ask you to read one or the other of those two articles and then either agree or disagree with it. Like argue against Nussbaum. Say that, no, Alcibiades is a fake. Like, that's not the way that love actually works, and Plato makes that clear. Here are my examples. Or using new, uh, argue about how, like, Plato does make concessions for uh, heterosexual love, or, like, how, you know, broken the homoerotic relationships are actually presented to be here. Um, again, take a look at those articles, evaluate them, come to your conclusion about what they are saying, and then in your two to three pages, both present their case and why you agree or disagree with it. We'll talk about that more as we go, because obviously we haven't read the symposium yet. But that's the first paper we're dealing with here. Again, it's an opportunity to sort of do our original historical contextualization um, right out of the gate. Um, so we'll talk about that more. It is, however, just two to three pages. Um, it's not meant to be a huge, long paper. Like, you probably could write a decent-sized paper uh, and people probably have in response to Nussbaum and New. Um, I'm not looking for something ridiculously academic and professional. You're undergrads. It's okay. Um, what I am looking for is for you to start practicing that. Because that is a huge part of what scholarship is all about. Articulating your ideas, articulating your opinions, criticizing other people's opinions in a way that is both formal and respectful. That's what we're here to do. Um, so with that in mind, the big deal that we are working up to is the research paper, which is twice as long, four to five pages. And I have presented five questions here for you. How does Plato's discussion of love in the symposium inform, or Aristotle's discussion in the uh, uh, Nicomachean Ethics, inform more recent scholars? Two, has the Judeo-Christian ideal of selfless love been distorted by the Christian tradition? Three, what conclusions about friendship remain consistent at all times and through all cultures, and which seem to be very limited? Four, since the 19th century, many philosophers have argued that love and friendship don't exist. What happened between 1400 and 1800 to change that perspective? And lastly, what is, when has the relationship between love and sex been strongest versus weakest? And use examples from the class readings to support this. Notice that all of these questions are, again, controversial, require you to make a position, to make an argument, to say yes or no, this or that. And I expect you to not only argue for your position, but against the people who disagree with you. So this is a research paper. I expect you to use at least three of our class readings, because we're doing a lot of little ones as well as at least two outside sources. Now keep in mind that doesn't necessarily mean outside of the class entirely. There are quite a few convenient little articles in our Philosophy of Erotic Love textbook that you could totally use because we're not reading them in class. P.S. Nussbaum and New do not count because they were important for the other paper, but we'll get into the details there. The last thing I want to stress is we're going to be using the Chicago Manual of Style to like create our papers. 
Um, you were probably very used to MLA from your high school experience, but philosophy tends to prefer Chicago style. Also, I just love Chicago style because it's gorgeous and it's very streamlined and it's very like clean looking and it's just the best and I love it and I will wax poetic about it much later in the class. For now, all you need to know is I'm going to expect Chicago style. Not necessarily for any of your other assignments, but just for this one. I recommend you try it out first. It would be really bright to try using Chicago style on your symposium paper before it's actually required where I can like point out mistakes and say, hey, you did this right and hey, you did this wrong before it actually counts. But all the same, I will not require it. So if you don't want to worry about it, don't worry about it. And we'll talk about it at length later on in the class. But those are the two papers. Again, they're both going to be submitted online. Both of them, like the response papers and basically like any written assignment in this class, I will be checking for plagiarism. So this is where things count. Uh, like you'll even notice in the weighting that the research paper accounts for a grand 30% of the full like final grade. This is the big one. This is what you're working towards. This is what the class is going to sum up with. There is a final exam. It's also a big deal. We aren't going to talk about it extensively here because it's just like too far away and there's too much to discuss. Um, and it will help to have all of our knowledge before us before we do. Um, but suffice it to say, don't worry about the final now, but the research paper you should be keeping in the back of your mind like already, even as we start our readings in the weeks to come. Um, the last thing to talk about is the attendance and participation grade. As I said, the attendance and participation grade, like if you routinely miss classes with no explanation, you'll start losing one point per class until like you've lost considerable number of points. Um, but this also has the participation side of it. Um, typically when I sit down and do the attendance and participation grade, I will like divide it in half. The 10 points that I just sort of tack on at the end will break down to five attendance points and five participation points. If you've missed more than eight classes, then that could change. Um, but suffice it to say, the participation side of that grade is not terribly like straightforward, I guess. Um, what I recommend, the way to totally ace the attendance and participation grade is to A, show up, except for when you can't, and then to tell me when you can't, but also to participate every day. Like, it doesn't have to be a huge thing. You don't have to, like, stand up in front of the class and do this whole spiel. Like, ask one substantive question or make one substantive comment every class that we meet. Like, online, in person, the whole shebang. Make sure that I, that you get your voice heard, that you add to the conversation, and you will get a perfect five out of five on the participation side of the attendance participation grade. But if that's not your bag, if you are too shy, if you are too much a wallflower, that's okay. As long as you participate periodically, you'll still get a four. Like, if you don't have to be one of the leaders of the class to get the perfect score, but if you are still, like, regularly participating, if I know you by sight or by name on, uh, on Zoom or whatever, you'll still get a four out of five. You'll still get plenty of recognition for that. And even if you don't participate at all, you can still do well if I know what's going on with you. If I know that you are plugged into the class, if I know that you're trying to deal with the material, if you have sent me emails about you know, extensions, or if you've sent me emails with questions about the class, if you send me emails with questions about the material, um, if you just said hi at one point, 
Like, if you introduced yourself, if I know your name, if I've had a conversation with you, you'll still definitely get the three, if not the four. Um, the participation grade doesn't necessarily mean participation in class, like, in the discussion, as much as I want you to encourage, to, as much as I want to encourage you to do that. Mostly, I want this to be an indication that I know where you're at, that I know you are not just a face in my classroom, and I know nothing more beyond that. Um, if you participate, if you give me effort, if you show me that you're working on this, that's all I need to know. Um, other than that, the last part of the syllabus is, de is devoted to the schedule. Um, in general, our schedule basically consists of three phases to the class. The first phase is the one we're currently in, where we're going to introduce stuff. Next week, we're going to talk about love. Like, we're going to define it. Like, you don't have to read anything. Hooray! Um, so come to our online session on Thursday, and we'll talk about what love actually is, what it means to us and to our culture. We're going to attempt to create a philosophical definition collectively, insofar as that's possible. And then the following week, we're going to talk about the historical side of it. We're going to read some Foucault, who is, like, my all-time favorite contemporary writer about sex and love and the history of discussion, discussing sex and love. Um, we're going to read a chunk of his uh, introduction to sexuality, um, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to look at his method. We're going to talk about what the business of doing philosophical history actually involves. And then we're going to do it. Like, then we enter phase two and we just start reading stuff. Read the Old Testament, read Plato, read Aristotle, read the Stoics, read some Eastern philosophy, some medieval philosophy, some Islamic philosophy. Like, we're just going to bing, bang, boom all our way up to the 19th century and beyond. And then at the very end of the class, after we come back from Thanksgiving, we enter phase three, which is where we're going to start looking at contemporary 20th century scholars themselves looking back at the history of philosophy and coming to their own conclusions, whether skewed or not. We're going to see how the preoccupations of the 20th century, like feminism, like queer theory, like gender studies, like the ethics of care, are informed by this history and also serve to interpret and inform the way that we understand this history. We're going to see the basic summary, in short. And then it'll be the exam time, and we'll dismiss, and we'll go and do Christmas and stuff. Um, all of this... If you haven't been watching, it is all on Canvas. Like, it isn't right now, because right now it is like a week before class starts and I haven't even gotten my credentials to get on Canvas at this point. We're working on it. I'm not panicking. You're panicking. Um, but at this point, by the time that you're reading this, hopefully all of that is dealt with, and there should be a very detailed Canvas page, including all of the assignments I've discussed, including all of the readings that, we, that we're going to have, all laid out chronologically on the modules page. If you have any questions about what you're supposed to be doing at any given point in the semester, check the modules page and you will find everything you need there. The one thing you're not going to see are the reading quizzes. That's because they are secret and they will only unlock a week before they are due. They will magically appear and then you'll have to, a week to complete them and then they'll magically disappear again. The idea being that, you know, you don't complete the entire class way before everybody else does, and that you're at least paying attention to, you know, what we are studying in a given week so you can participate in the conversation. Like, if you want to read ahead, go for it. I'm not going to challenge you on that. Um, but very much, you know, remember what we are, in fact, going to discuss before we discuss it. 
Um, so if you have any other questions, I know that this lecture went very long. Um, this is way more than I'm actually going to get in class, so hopefully I won't totally screw it up. Um, if you have any other questions, again, feel free to email me. I want to hear from you. I want to, you know, get to know you on some level. Like, we probably will not be friends by the end of the semester. I am at the end of the day your professor, and really, what is friendship anyway? Oh, God, oh, God, so much conflicting information. Um, but I do hope to know you in some capacity, to know where you're at, to help, to be able to better help you to succeed at this class. So absolutely drop me an email. Absolutely, you know, catch me before or after class on Monday. Absolutely, like, just reach out. Send a message on Canvas. Um, say hello. Tell me what your favorite kind of pie is. Um, and hopefully we'll have a good semester. I hope, I really do think that it's going to be interesting. Anyway, have a good time. Definitely come prepared to talk about love next week. Definitely track down those textbooks and let me know if you have any trouble. The symposium one you will need first, so be quickest on that. Um, and we'll talk soon.